0: We don't focus as much on the smaller platforms and the whole ecosystem of sort of alternative platforms and alternative websites where content continues to live on and spread and be recirculated over and over again before it again makes its way back onto the mainstream platform. Write as much as you can. Every kind of thing you can possibly try to learn how to write, write it. Take every writing class you can. In most organizations there isn't a deep enough capability yet or sort of large enough numbers of people looking at this issue to begin with.
1: Welcome to the Convergence, an Army Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center, within the Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientists. Mad Scientist is a US Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Cindy Otis, former CIA officer and expert on disinformation specializing in election security, digital investigations, and messaging. Cindy is also the author of True or False, a CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. Cindy will be talking with us today about weaponized information, her time as a CIA officer, and what we can do as a society to combat disinformation. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. So Cindy, you were an intelligence analyst for the CIA for 10 years, and you were even a White House briefer. What did you do as an analyst and why did you want to get into intelligence?
0: Yeah, so um, it really was a very fascinating career. So I started um, working in political analysis and then moved quickly into um, security and military issues because that was more of my background. So I worked geographically a couple of areas, primarily um, Europe, the Middle East, and parts of North Africa throughout my career. Um, And really, you know, it probably won't uh, be new information for most of the folks listening in. But for an intel analyst, um, my job was really just combing through um, just massive amounts of information and intelligence that came in from minute to minute to analyze current um, and breaking events uh, that were of interest to um, U.S. policymakers and making sure that they were as informed as possible as to what was going on with current events and, you know, analyzing sort of where where we thought events were headed. So I worked, as I said, a lot of security issues, so terrorism, uh, military operations. You know, every war that the United States was interested in that occurred during my time. um, A lot of sort of crisis kinds of kinds of things. And then as a briefer, um, it was absolutely the the highlight of my career. There's sort of nothing like going down to the White House um, every single day. Um, armed with your little, you know, suitcase of information uh, that you are uh, briefing to policymakers who are making decisions based off of the intelligence uh, and analysis that they're consuming. So um, it's a really fascinating experience. I can tell you that being an intel briefer is also one of the most physically demanding jobs uh, out there. The schedule is absolutely bonkers. Um, You basically don't sleep the whole rotation. You work in the middle of the night through the morning, and you're done sort of when your customers are done with you. Usually it was sort of midnight to sometimes 4pm. For me, because I happened to start as a briefer, uh, when a number of very significant global conflicts um, and crises were starting. So yeah, it was it was super fascinating. And one of the reasons that I decided to go uh, into intelligence and specifically, the CIA, I mean, I always sort of joke, and it's it's definitely true that the first thing that sort of got me interested was my dad's love for James Bond movies. Um, so he introduced me to James Bond movies when I was just a kid. And I thought, well, that's a cool job. How do, you, how do you get into Intel? And I sort of didn't really think of it as a serious career option for me until I had one of those amazing sort of teacher-student moments in which I was sort of unloading to a teacher about you know, my fears about not really knowing what I should do with my life, having a lot of what I thought were very disparate interests. Such as, I really loved languages, I really loved anything foreign, any foreign country, culture, history. Um, I just soaked it up. I really loved writing. um, I really loved sort of tackling complex issues. And he said, well, have you ever thought about, you know, working for the CIA? I said, well, yeah, I mean, everybody sort of thinks about it, don't they? But I just never thought it was really possible. And he said, you sound... Like exactly the kind of person they're looking for, and I still don't to this day know why he necessarily thought of it, or you know what sort of connection he might have had to it that would that would lead him to encouraging me to to go for it. But obviously, certainly glad I did, or he did.
1: Was your time in the CIA anything like a James Bond movie? <laughs>
0: um, there were there were parts. I mean, mostly no. Like mostly, as an intel analyst in particular, like you're reading just a huge amount of information. Uh, every single day and so you spend sort of your day you know chained to your desk reading and writing um, all day long so it's very much the job of an intel analyst is very much a sort of like nerdy desk job but there were moments in which I was in a particular country or I was you know working with different counterparts you know something would happen or um, they'd say something and I'd be like oh you know this this kind of feels a little bit like a James Bond movie Um, So there were flashes of that feeling.
1: Matt
2: and I know all about the nerdy desk job of it.
1: All too well. (laughs) So how did your experience in the CIA help you think about the future?
0: I think one of the best things about going into intel analysis is it really helps you think about complex issues and teaches you sort of how to break them down, distill them into sort of the key things that you need to pay attention to and sort of how to think about, you know, where are those issues headed? I often get questions from folks about, you know, I'm very overwhelmed by what's happening in the news. I'm very overwhelmed by, you know, current events. And you sort of seem calm, at least on social media. You have a very sort of like calm presence. Like, how do you treat issues so calmly? How do you sort of do these, you know, distilled down guides of, of how to think about issues? And it really comes from my background as an intel analyst of taking very, very difficult content like wars, like terrorism, a lot of death, a lot of graphic content and that sort of thing. And learning how to, you know, sort of internally handle that content, but then think about, okay, what comes next? And that's really the big issue that intel analysts are always trying to grapple with: is you're trying to see, okay, so what's happening? Why is it happening? But ultimately, sort of, what does it mean, and what happens next? And I think um, that's just been a really critical skill for me, who you know works now in uh, analyzing and researching disinformation, to always be looking to, okay. You know, what do we need to be prepared for next?
2: That's some fantastic insights. One of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is you wrote a book that's coming out this summer called True or False, a CIA Analyst guide to spotting fake news. So could you tell us kind of what are the main themes of that book and what really inspired you to write it?
0: So ultimately, the, the sort of main theme is what I hope comes through of it is um, a, a feeling of hope and to really encourage that feeling of hope, my book is very much focused on on action. Um, What can you learn about disinformation, fake news, propaganda, all of that, but ultimately what can you do about it? How can you arm yourself uh, as a citizen of this country and and sort of be that first line of defense against disinformation and fake news? So the book is sort of broken up into two parts as a result. One is uh, doing a sort of historical review of a number of different time periods um, or historical figures that will be normal names that people have heard uh, before. Um, and looking at how fake news or disinformation, they either used it or it affected them and sort of their historical legacy or, you know, their time period. And that was really to demonstrate that disinformation, propaganda and fake news are not new things. And I think there's a lot of research going on right now. There's a sort of growing uh, community of, of folks who analyze um, and research disinformation it's getting a lot of attention in the news right now, which is all great, but I feel sometimes like it's sort of, as a result, treated as a, as a brand new issue, a brand new threat, when really that's not the case at all. It's been around for a very long time, and so I felt like it was really important to provide that historical context, because ultimately, you know, the tools and the tactics that people or organizations or groups might be using to push disinformation might have changed with the creation of different forms of technology, but ultimately, the messages, the emotions, the narratives, and a lot of the patterns have been the same throughout history, uh, in terms of creating and crafting disinformation that ultimately is successful. And so, you know, the the historical context, I think, really provides a roadmap for us to think about as we're dealing with the challenge today. And so then the second part of the book is, um, is focused on that action. So Now that you sort of know that fake news and disinformation are not new things, here's what you can do about it. And that's ultimately what I wanted to accomplish with the book, is helping arm the average information consumer with the tools and tactics to be that first line of defense against disinformation and fake news. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are, you know, people are the ones who are creating fake news or disinformation, spreading fake news, disinformation or misinformation, Um, And so they have to be sort of that first line of defense.
2: I I think that's so fascinating and it's really a good segue. We have a wide range of listeners, so military members, academics, students, civilians, and more. What lessons would you really want them to take from this book?
0: I really want people to, to take away first sort of what I alluded to earlier of of this not being a new problem because I think that takes away some of the the fear about it um, or sort of the scariness of the issue if I can put it that way and I want them to come away feeling hopeful that there's something that they themselves can do about it. You might not be able to control what you know Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of the social media platforms do um, about the problem. you might not be able to, control the government response to it or anything like that but you sure can make sure that you Luke you Matt are responsible users of social media that you're employing good tactics and tools in making sure that the information that you share and you're consuming comes from reputable sources so those are ultimately the things that I want people to take away from it and really it boils down to like having this feeling of responsibility that, yes, you too need to be a part of the solution.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's such a great point. And we talk a lot about the future of technologies and the future of trends on this podcast. And you've really obviously done a lot of research on this um, based on your your interests here. What do you think the future of fake news and and information warfare really looks like?
0: Yeah, so there are a lot of things um, going on in this space right now that I think are sort of telling signs of where this is all headed. So in terms of the number of players that are involved in creating and disseminating and amplifying fake news and disinformation, that's increasing. Um, So as countries um, and foreign governments see how successful and effective other foreign governments or groups have been in um, using disinformation and propaganda as a tool and a weapon, and even sometimes a foreign policy tactic to influence events in other countries, they too will delve into this space. I think we're seeing um, right now a number of countries that have very successfully used disinformation and propaganda domestically within their own countries to influence their citizenry, uh, their population on domestic issues, and to, you know, control their populations. And now they see uh, and are starting to delve into using that same uh, infrastructure, that same capability to um, target events outside of their borders as well, that coincide with their, their policy interests. I think we're going to see more foreign governments uh, getting involved in, in the disinformation space. Um, we're also seeing and have for a couple of years now, but I think it's it's going to be increasing, a number of commercial players getting involved as well. So what I like to call disinformation for hire, essentially coalescing into this disinformation industry where you can sell things like influence operations. A lot of, you know, quote unquote, cybersecurity firms in foreign countries uh, sell social media influence operations to influence whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a deal between companies, a bidding war of some sort. And then there are also, you know, sort of smaller for profit endeavors as well, things like troll farms uh, in other countries, uh, black PR firms, quote unquote, marketing firms that really aren't marketing firms, they're disinformation for hire, essentially, but under a nicer name that are, you know, essentially using uh, and, and selling the same the same tactics that disinformation threat actors use, selling fake accounts, for example. So aside from the sort of foreign government angle of it, I think the the commercial space is a huge one to watch. And then on the domestic front, I think a number of domestic populations in different countries are seeing how effective disinformation can be, whether it's ideologically motivated or again for profit. And it's been on the rise uh, here at home in the United States for several years now, um, sort of more and more domestic groups and individuals uh, using disinformation um, as a tool and tactic.
1: Cindy, what are we missing? And by we, I mean, what are the Army and the DOD as a whole not thinking about or paying enough attention to when it comes to this subject?
0: I think that um, that's a great question. I, I think the community of, of folks um, with DOD and um, Army, but also from the private sector and uh, academia, the not-for- not-for-profit sector, I think we share a lot of similarities in terms of what we're missing. Part of it, I think, is in most organizations, there isn't a deep enough bench yet or capability yet or um, sort of large enough numbers of people looking at this issue to begin with. There's a lot of great work happening right now. But when you sort of peel back the surface, you, you learn very quickly that it's just a handful of people doing you know, amazing work at this organization or that organization or this government agency. So we need a whole lot more folks um, who are trained in uh, disinformation investigations and analysis and that sort of thing. One thing I think is really important is that oftentimes I think we're analyzing disinformation campaigns looking for the same trends that we identified back in 2015 and 2016, whereas disinformation actors have already learned from that. Even if it's not, you know, Russia specific, other countries, groups, organizations have learned from Russia's actions and they're getting better. And so to treat this issue as it's the same as it was in 2015 and 2016 just isn't isn't accurate. It's not re- reflective of where sort of disinformation actors are on the sophistication uh, level, particularly when we think about Russia, for example. And then I think another key piece that we could use a lot of work on still is really drilling down on on what are the actual solutions to this problem. I think, you know, there are some some talented folks out there that uh, work on the investigations side of things like I do. So analyzing current campaign, disinformation campaigns, current threat actors, you know, looking for what's coming next, um, how the threat actors are evolving and all of that. But ultimately, what do you do about it? Are there uh, opportunities to, you know, try out different interventions that help address this this threat? I don't think that there's near enough attention being paid to how do you actually minimize the risk of of disinformation.
1: So that answer actually leads um, nicely into this next question. What role do you think education, education in general and training, training for the military takes in defending against disinformation?
0: I I think it takes a huge role uh, in all of this. When we talk about solutions, I think um education is just enormous which is one of the reasons that i that i wrote my book um i sort of i didn't want to write something that was like here is this massive problem good luck <laughs> people live in enough fear these days, I think. So I wanted to be able to give them something they could actually do, right? And I think I think the, the education piece of this is, is just enormous. There are a lot of really great organizations out there um, in academia and the not-for-profit space. Um, I'm a big, big fan of the folks at First Draft News, um, of MediaWise and organizations like that that really focus on the education piece of this. So everything from sort of the basics of, you know, how do you how do you just a media consumer verify information? But they also do a lot of free training uh, and advising for journalists, for anyone who wants to learn how to do investigations as well. A lot of training on OSINT tools, um, open source Intel tools for for folks who can and want to do that sort of extra step of of running stuff down and digging into things. And certainly a, a good resource for for even, you know, DOD.
2: I mean, those are fantastic insights in terms of how we have to consider things, especially um, training for the military and trying to get folks ready for that. Given your fascinating background that we talked about before, we talk a lot about, again, the future of this podcast and really in the future, those intelligence personnel that will be in the future are in high school and middle school and maybe even elementary school right now. What advice would you give them and why would they want to work in intelligence?
0: So it's a great question. Um, and for anyone who's considering um, the Intel world and, and specifically on things like um, information warfare, it's absolutely a fascinating field. I couldn't recommend it enough. It's an opportunity to uh, work on sort of the, n- the next generation um, of warfare. It's um, an opportunity to just work on some very fascinating issues that are national security issues for not just our country, but other countries as well. Allies and you know countries that we want to help keep safe. So my biggest piece of advice always, no matter what career you're even thinking about going into, but specifically for Intel, is write write as much as you can, every kind of thing you can possibly try to learn how to write, write it, take every writing class you can, read up online about how to write clear and concisely, um, and then practice it. The communications piece of this, being able to translate very complex, convoluted ideas to people who might not be experts, because you have to, you have to remember and, and realize that you might be serving a senior policymaker, but that policymaker might not have any experience in the issue you're working on. This might be the first time they're ever hearing about it. So being able to distill very convoluted ideas and complex issues with long histories into potentially you get half a page, maybe a page for a policymaker who doesn't have a lot of time that takes a lot of a lot of training. And so uh, I'm a huge, a huge proponent of just learning to write well. So uh, and, and then sort of, you know, the the related idea to that is learning how to speak as well because a lot of what we do is, is briefings. Um, so I went into my job actually being terrified of public speaking and speaking in front of other people. I would sweat and shake, and I just felt sick to my stomach and all of that as a wee 20, what was I, 22-year-old when I started, 23-year-old. So I had to go into situations where I was briefing two or three or four stars, you know, as the, the tiny little woman who's, <laughs> you know, just a young kid. And I was terrified of speaking. So it took a lot of uh, extra training for me. I took a lot of voluntary classes and things and found opportunities to practice um, until I became confident in being able to get across my message. So that communication piece is, is, um, is really sort of my biggest piece of advice for folks who are thinking about getting into this
1: field. I think that's great advice. Communication is key in all facets of life. So uh, future intel analysts take heed. Um, Cindy, let's let's transition to our quick fire questions now, and we'll start you off with the first one here. What technology or trend keeps you up at night?
0: Um, so, a lot about disinformation keeps me up at night. I I get quite worried about sort of all those commercial disinformation actors that that I talked about, um, the people who are trying to profit from this. But I also am very concerned about. You know, we tend to focus a lot on major social media platforms, so the Facebook, Twitter, YouTubes, and we don't focus as much on the smaller platforms and the whole ecosystem of sort of alternative platforms and alternative websites where um, content continues to live on and spread and, you know, be recirculated over and over again before it again makes its way back onto the mainstream platform that might have deleted it, you know, months or even years before. So I worry about a lot about that, that little ecosystem um, and that we're not paying enough attention to it.
1: So question number two, what's something about you most people might not know?
0: Something about me. Um, so I'm a huge green thumb. Um, I love plants and flowers of any variety. Um, I spend ridiculous amounts of money um, <laughs> every year uh, when, when there's good weather to buy more flowers and plants. And if I could live in a greenhouse, I probably would.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Okay, and finally, and we talked James Bond already, what is your favorite movie?
0: Um, So I have pretty wide-ranging interests in movies. I love a lot of classics, and I love musicals, so like Hello, Dolly! with Barbra Streisand is one of my favorites, but for this audience, it's probably more appropriate. As I said, my interests are very wide-ranging. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan.
2: That's that's a fantastic choice, and uh, we'll definitely play well with the home crowd. <laughs> awesome. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, tell the people where they can follow you at.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active there. So my Twitter um, handle is at Cindy Otis with an underscore at the end. So C-I-N-D-Y-O-T-I-S underscore.
2: Do not forget the underscore. All right. Thank you so much. And that will do it today for The Convergence.
0: Thanks so
1: much. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Cindy Otis, former CIA officer, expert on disinformation, and author of True or False, A CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.com dot army dot mil.